Agriculture of America is brought to you by Senex Maxtron Synthetic Diesel Engine Oils. Oils that run smart. Informing America's farmers and ranchers, this is AOA, produced by the American Ag Radio Network. Now, here's your host, Mike Pearson. Well, hello, ladies and gentlemen. Thanks for tuning in to AOA. And of course, folks, if you're listening today live, it is Friday, 11-11, the 11th day of the 11th month here of 2022, which means, of course, it's Veterans Day. Before we get into today's show, I just want to take my hat off and salute all of those who have put their lives on hold for some time or perhaps permanently in order to raise the flag of America and continue our tradition of freedoms out there in the international world. I know my family has a proud tradition of service, and my little sister right now is learning ordnance over in Virginia with the U.S. Army, and I tell you, I've had to come to grips with the fact that my little sister is a tougher man than I am here as she works with the Army to continue to grow. Thanks to all of you who have served this country or who are serving right now. We certainly appreciate it here at AOA. Looking ahead to this show, of course, we are going to be talking about the markets in just a moment with our friend Garrett Toy of Ag Trader Talk. And in segment two, Jerry Hagstrom of the Hagstrom Report is going to join us. There was a national security memorandum issued yesterday by the Biden administration related specifically to agriculture. Jerry's going to tell us about why they just published this. And then in segment three, Cam Quarles, our friend, the CEO of the National Potato Council, joins the show. The potato industry in the U.S. is dealing with a threat to the north, PEI potato wart, and the USDA is trying to figure out a way to move this industry forward. Cam will give us the details on that here. And then at the end of the show, we're going to check in with Kerry, Kelly Garrett of Extreme Ag, learn how harvest went in his part of the world in western Iowa. Let's jump right into it with a market conversation with our friend Garrett Toy here today. Garrett, we are seeing the soybean market moving, and I'm wondering, is this connected to the idea that China might be lifting some of their zero COVID protocols? Yeah, it seems there's a, there's a lot of slack in the air, and it seems like the USDA report was a lifetime ago. But but uh, we have the uh, yesterday we well a combination of things. You had considerable weakness in the Brazilian real yesterday, and there's, with the transition to the new president in Lula, um, there's a lot of questions, a lot of watching what's going to happen there. Uh, the weakness in the currency resulted in a huge amount of, of Brazilian farmers selling yesterday, over a million metric tons, and that order flow helped pressure the markets, especially in a market that was just coming off a CPI print. You seemingly had unwind of uh, the inflation trade, uh, but all this weakness in the eggs was was secular to the eggs. You looked at the CRB index, the CRB was actually up three points yesterday, but the eggs were all under pressure. Now, beans are up 32, 33 cents a day. You, you had the farmer selling yesterday, which was kind of selling into a, uh, a vacuum between the CPI data, and then you had China come out, and there's, don't, you know, don't be misconstrued, they're still very committed to the, the zero COVID policy, but they did relax the, the, the quarantine. Well, if you're a person coming into China, you now only have to quarantine and government quarantine for five days instead of the prior seven days. Uh, so that's kind of being viewed as a positive here, a, a, an olive branch, if you will. Uh, at the same time, though, the, they also reported their highest number of COVID cases since April. So um, it's, uh, it's a combination of the two. Now, that being said, you know, China has used this opportunity to buy 20, 30 cargoes of beans over the last 48 hours uh, out of the U.S. and South America. And uh, so there's buying under the market. But, yeah, it's, 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 uh, uh, we're up 2 to 3 in corn. We're up 30 to 33 in beans. We just made another leg higher here uh, back above this 1450 level in, in Jan beans. So it's, it's, it's been a good day so far. It certainly has. And, and Garrett, I imagine you mentioned the, the collapse of the Brazilian real yesterday. Today, we're seeing an ongoing drop in the value of the U.S. dollar down another 1,200 basis points today. Where does the dollar stop in this fall? Boy, that's a, that's a good question. I made the comment last week that the dollar index chart looked toppy, uh, but the, the bulls defended that 110 area. Well, now here we are at our lowest level since late September, which coincidentally was the last time, you know, these corn was, was back at these levels. Um, but, you know, where are we at? I mean, in, at, at, in, 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 at face value, it's bullish to commodities. It makes us a little bit cheaper, especially in a market where we're very expensive. Uh, but, you know, the last 30 to 60 days, you know, the green markets have largely been 
uh, insulated from the dollar rally. I mean, we just got done trading the seven dollars here not only two three weeks ago. So uh, you know, it, it, it doesn't seem to be reacting at this point. It'll definitely help longer term, in my opinion. Uh, and this dollar index certainly does look like we might have put in a short term top, but uh, it's above my pay grade to make to make that call because uh, uh, the, the the amount of macro forces that are at play in this market. Yeah, that's a great point. We're discussing the ag commodities while the crypto market is entirely collapsing and changing the way that investment money moves through the system. Garrett, I want to bring it back to your pay grade here, and I want to talk about corn. You mentioned we saw that $7 here just, uh, well, a few weeks ago. With this drop in the dollar, with the, the tailwinds that are building, can we see that uh, that corn market get back towards 7 bucks, at least maybe in the March contract? You know, honestly, I think that we're kind of getting into some winter doldrums here. You know, I mean, the, the harvest just wrapped up, the crops in the bin, the farmer's not going to sell anything anyway. You know, and in fact, I wouldn't be, you know, too you know, uh, objective or too, I wouldn't object to a, you know, a sell-off here to allow the market to get too competitive. And we go back to that U.S., you go back to that USDA report, and the thing that, that, that concerned everybody, everybody was looking for how how bad these corn exports are. We were going to see a big cut in corn exports on, on Wednesday. We didn't see it, but what did the USDA do? They cut Argentine wheat due to drought. They cut Argentine soybeans due to drought. So I think that they wanted to kind of keep some options on the table once they find out what final production is in January. Remember, next month's, next month's WASDE is purely demand. Uh, there's no supply estimates. And I think that we just kind of you know drift here, you know, for the time being through the holidays. A lot of traders here just don't want to get too involved because you get into holiday trade, it gets thin, um, and they don't want to risk their year in the month of December. So never mind the fact that you got to have things kind of wound down in November if you want to get your bonuses in December for the for 2022. So uh, I think that's kind of what you're seeing from the managed money crowd is some unwind here. Can we get back to $7? Um, after the first year, if we have weather event in South America, absolutely. If we have weather event in South America, absolutely. Um, and I do think that the export program will fully shift back to the U.S. after the first of the year. So we just kind of keep our powder dry here near term. I watch, you know, let the South Americans have uh, the exports here through November and December. But January, February, March, uh, April, May, uh, it should be the U.S. corn export program's time to shine. All right, that's on the corn side. Garrett, bringing it back to the soy product side, meal has been on a tremendous rally for the entire month of October and November. We're re-getting close to those uh, those summer highs. Where do you think this uh, this oil market rather goes from here? Well, it's not just been meal; it's been products. I mean, you know, and I think that there's been hiccups here with bean oil this week just because of the fact that. Uh, um, you know, a question about the election changes in the House and how that may potentially impact renewable credits or renewable fuel credits and, and tax incentives and things of that sort. Um, and I think ultimately people realize that that was just kind of noise. Um, but products have been on a tear. And beans were under pressure because we had the harvest pressure and the selling across the scale. And this move back to 1450, considering how strong cash mar or crush margins are and how, how strong oil share were, um, that's allowed the bean market to kind of get back to the fair value. I'm actually friendly, friendly beans in here. Uh, I think that the products can run a little bit more. All right, and they are running today. Soybean oil December contract up $2.46. Garrett Toy, Ag Trader Talk, thank you so much for joining us today. Always appreciate your insight. Thank you. And folks, stick around. When AOA returns, we're going to talk with Jerry Hagstrom of the Hagstrom Report about some recent unveilings in Washington, D.C. Agriculture of America is brought to you by Cenex Premium Diesel. Diesel that doesn't mess around. As a farmer, growing your business is more than just a 9 to 5. It's your life's work. That's why the Roundup Ready Extend Crop System goes all in to help you stay on top. Backed by decades of innovation, offering the latest trait technology and triple herbicide tolerance, plus more weed species controlled than any other soybean system. Because you mean business, and so do we. Learn more at systemofchoice.com. Claim based on approved EPA herbicide labels as of January 2021. Read and follow pesticide label directions, grain marketing, and other stewardship practices. I think farming picked me. <laughs> I didn't pick farming. I'm not afraid to try something new. It's my farm, my family, and our future. My channel Seedsman gets that. I get access to innovative products with personalized advice backed by data to maximize my yield potential. With channel, I know I'll prosper for years to come. 
Define your future at channel.com slash future. Read and follow pesticide label directions. IRM, grain marketing, and other stewardship practices. Copyright 2022 Bayer Group. All rights reserved. On the first Wednesday of every month, our friends from the National Corn Growers Association join us on AOA for a segment we call The Monthly Grind. This month's edition focused on poultry. Shelby Watson of the USA Poultry and Egg Export Council joined the show with Mike Beard, Indiana farmer. We talked about how much corn exported poultry uses in this country. In 2021, the U.S. poultry industry exported about 303 million corn bushel equivalents worth of poultry. So we're expecting to... um, fly by that this year. Um, we know the numbers are already kind of bypassing that. So we're excited to see the full 2022 picture. Um, but the poultry industry consumes about 1.2 billion bushels of corn, which makes them the largest consumer um, of corn grain in the livestock sector. Mike Beard, corn grower from Indiana, he had this to say. One bird doesn't eat a lot of feed, but a lot of birds will, will eat a lot. That's the monthly grind from NCGA and AOA. Tune in December 7th for the next installment. Take a look under your bed. Find stuff under there? What about jobs? No? Now try your basement. There's a pair of overalls that overall you're not so into anymore. A perfectly good laptop that hasn't sat in your lap in months. And even more stuff, but still no jobs? Well, you really have both. See, stuff is defined as household articles considered as a group. Sometimes this stuff is no longer needed. Wait, no longer needed? That can't be right. Because remember those jobs you were looking for? Those are really needed, and they're the stuff inside your stuff. Even inside that winter coat that moved with you to Phoenix. Our job is to unlock those jobs, and it starts when you donate your stuff to your local Goodwill. Here's how we do it. When you donate to Goodwill, we sell your stuff to provide job training for people right here in your community. So just by teaming up with Goodwill, you help create jobs. And isn't that worth parting with the leftover keytar from your 80s cover band? Goodwill. Donate stuff, create jobs. Find your nearest donation center at goodwill.org. A message from Goodwill and the Ad Council. Agriculture of America is brought to you by Cenex Premium Diesel. Diesel that doesn't mess around. Keeping America's farmers and ranchers informed on AOA. Now back to Mike Pearson. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to AOA. In this segment, we're going to turn our focus way out east to Washington, D.C. with the midterm elections earlier this week, the CPI data print yesterday and Today, we're digging into a national security memorandum issued by the Biden administration yesterday. It's a national security memorandum. The subject is strengthening the security and resilience of United States food and agriculture. Curious about why we've got a national security memo and what exactly it might do? We're going to turn to Jerry Hagstrom, author of the Hagstrom Report. Jerry, I'm sure you've been watching this and taking a look. Big picture, a national security memorandum. What are these for? Uh, Well, good morning from Washington, where it's a very rainy uh, Veterans Day and the government's closed down, so it's a a good day for reflection. Uh, It is. As far as the National Security Memorandum is concerned, uh, I think it's important to to point out that there was one in effect already. I didn't know anything about it. I think it goes back to 2004, and there were probably memorandums uh, before that. Uh, but the point that the Biden administration is making in revising this is that times have obviously changed since 2004. Uh, we've had the uh, coronavirus pandemic, um, and we have. Uh, but I think the most important thing is that there is this cybersecurity issue, um, and they point out they don't mention JBS, but they point out that there was a, there was a big cybersecurity breach. And so this, is, this memorandum is, first of all, supposed to put in process planning for cybersecurity events and then to develop a process for dealing with them. Now, it, uh, they also uh, mentioned, the White House people uh, mentioned climate change as an issue and uh, avian influenza uh, and, uh, and, I would say, other animal diseases. So uh, I see an update here. I still have a hard time figuring out exactly what they're going to do. I don't see anything in the memo that says uh, private business has to do this or that. 
uh, although they they certainly emphasize that you know um, agricultural production and food production are in private hands. Um, so we'll have to see some of this, but it's going to it's going to play out, I think, over the next eighteen months. And I think it's worth mentioning that a national security memorandum, you mentioned it doesn't touch on the the private parties doing it. This does not have the force of law, does it? It's more of a directional document for the administration? That's right. Uh, Well, of course, uh, you know, when we get into what is the force of law, uh, we think of things that are passed by Congress. But, of course, the the executive branch has the power to develop uh, uh, regulations uh, and what they're most of all here, I think it's mostly a planning document. And probably the government, especially the Agriculture Department and the Food and Drug Administration, are already doing a lot of these things. But uh, a lot of this has to do also with the relationship with other government agencies, the Defense Department um, and the um, Homeland, Security, uh, Homeland Security Department. Um, so I see it more of a formalization than than uh, a complete rewrite. Also, the White House officials, when when they called reporters yesterday, refused to discuss any budgetary issues. But I noticed that in the memo, it says the memo says that agencies are supposed to think about this this issue, this national security issue, when they are putting in their budget request to the Office of Management and Budget. So this will be one more thing for which the um, Agriculture Department and the FDA are going to have to think about how they want to uh, spend their money. Indeed they are, Jerry. And as I was reading through this uh, this memorandum, it certainly looks like this is going to encourage a lot of the government agencies to really start cranking out some reports on how ag is is uh, not nationally secure. Is that kind of your understanding? This will now encourage other government agencies to review their, their their handlings and different things? Well, I think it will, and I think it will also have a secondary effect on private business to think about this, to think about what the potential is for a cybersecurity problem, for an animal disease problem. One of the things I did notice in there was that there was a talk about a vaccine bank. And so perhaps we will get more of a vaccine bank, which some of the ag groups, the animal ag groups, have been asking for um, because there's, you know, there's always this, this fear of, of uh, diseases uh, coming into the country. Um, and, 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 what, and the question of whether we have enough vaccine in, in such cases. Yeah, that has been a huge point. We've certainly heard about it from the pork producers as well as poultry folks and beef producers as well. And Jerry, I guess that kind of makes me think out to the intersection between a national security memo and legislation. Of course, the midterms just happened on Tuesday. We're going to have a we're going to see a shakeup in Congress in January. I'm curious, do you think any of the ideas in this will be incorporated into farm bill discussions next year? Oh, I definitely think they could be uh, incorporated, and I would uh, mention uh, particularly the idea of the vaccine bank, uh, since that's something solid that you can that you can focus on. What I don't know is whether Congress can do anything about cybersecurity. That is something really that the pr- private companies have to deal with pretty much on their own, and I think they are uh, they are trying to address it. Um, the the memo also mentions the war in Ukraine, which I think is a kind of backdoor way of mentioning the threats that can come that can come from Russia. So uh, there could be there there could be some of that in the in the discussion. Uh, the memo or not the memo so much, but the White House officials also emphasized climate change as something that has happened since 2004. And that, of course, is going to be a big topic in the Farm Bill discussions. It certainly is. That climate change discussion, we've seen this administration be very, very hot on this topic and climate smart agriculture. Jerry, I know we're still reviewing the election results from Tuesday. Don't have all the results in quite yet. But does your initial review of the races change the way this Farm Bill discussion could go next year? I don't. Well, the big difference would be who's in charge. And if the Republicans are in charge of the House and Senate Ag Committees, there will, there will be a different type of discussion about uh, climate change and climate smart agriculture. I think we've gotten to the point that everybody acknowledges that climate change is happening, 
uh, even the conservatives that, that don't like the, the idea that it's human-caused. Uh, but if the Republicans are in, in place, they are going to be questioning uh, Secretary Vilsack's use of the Commodity Credit Corporation to fund some of these climate-smart initiatives. Now, as far as what he's done so far, uh, it will probably be very hard to, to uh, counter that. Uh, the other day, Randy Russell was on a call, and he was the chief of staff during the uh, Reagan administration, chief of staff at USDA, and he pointed out that the, really that the, conser the Conservation Reserve Program was started with CCC money uh, before it, be it was legislated. And so the CCC can be used very creatively. Uh, so I don't know how this will go forward, but I would think that the Republicans would put, try to put in some kind of restrictions on the use of the CCC for this kind of activity. And that's a great point, Jerry. We've certainly heard some pushback from Republicans on the CCC being used for the pilot programs here on the Climate Smart Ag uh, uh, agenda. And I'm wondering, do you see any more CCC disbursements coming before we get this next Congress in? Would they try to try to preempt perhaps a change of leadership in uh, Congress? Well, I don't know if they would uh, if they will make put forward any new proposals, but I think they still have some of their climate smart uh, projects to announce. Um, the, they've, they've put out some, but I think there are still some more, and I would imagine that, that they will want to get those out. Um, one other point I would make about this is that the climate smart projects are involving so many different groups in agriculture that I think that there will be real resistance if the Republicans want to pull back on that. Uh, you know, when they, when they have these announcements come out, it's, it's practically every group that you could imagine has gotten something. That's true. And I'm wondering, is there any way that that money could be pulled back once it's been awarded, Jerry, or is the money that's been out issued already out for good? I think it's out. Now, the thing is that some of it has been allocated. I mean, it's been announced. But, it, that, you know, people have not actually gotten checks or deposits in their bank accounts for it. So, you know, some of it, I'm sure, is still sitting at, at you know, at USDA uh, ready to go out when these groups have their projects completely together. Because there's always the fear in the government of, um, that something's going to go badly and people are going to get blamed for misspending the taxpayers' money. Yeah, that's true. Nobody wants that black eye on their resume. Folks, we've been speaking with Jerry Hagstrom of the Hagstrom Report, getting the update on this national security memo for agriculture in D.C. Jerry, thanks for joining us today. You're welcome. And stick around. We're going to be talking with Cam Quarrell, CEO of the National Potato Council, when AOA returns. Agriculture of America is brought to you by Senex Maxtron Synthetic Diesel Engine Oils. Oils that run smart. We all know clean fields lead to strong yields. That's why ExtendFlex soybeans offer triple tolerance to dicamba, glyphosate, and glufosinate to control more weed species than any other soybean system. Even tough weeds like water hemp, palmer amaranth, and mare's tail. Get the control, flexibility, and proven performance you need so you can focus on the business at hand instead of beating back weeds. Explore the Roundup Ready Extend crop system at systemofchoice.com. Claim based on approved EPA herbicide labels as of January 2021. Read and follow pesticide label directions, grain marketing, and other stewardship practices. I think farming picked me. I didn't pick farming. I'm not afraid to try something new. It's my farm, my family, and our future. My channel Seedsman gets that. I get access to innovative products with personalized advice backed by data to maximize my yield potential. With channel, I know I'll prosper for years to come. Define your future at channel.com slash future. Read and follow pesticide label directions, IRM, grain marketing, and other stewardship practices. Copyright 2022 Bayer Group. All rights reserved. You're listening to AOA for the American Ag Network. I'm Jesse Allen reporting. Well, grains are off to a good start on Friday as the U.S. dollar is on track for its largest two-day decline in nearly 14 years after its largest single-day drop since 2015 yesterday. The optimistic CPI data yesterday showed only a 7.7% year-over-year inflation figure for October. 
That was less than analyst expectations, and it has the trade looking forward to the economy turning the corner. The Dow Jones looking to follow through on yesterday's big rally. It's the largest single session gain post-pandemic with record highs from early in the calendar year. Not that far off, so we're going to be watching the outside macro markets closely. Yesterday, the dollar breaking grains did not take advantage, but grains so far taking advantage on the day Friday while we see the livestock trade relatively mixed in early action. Just kind of quiet there with cattle features down a little bit, hogs up a little bit. But again, the grain market, the big winner so far this uh, Friday with crude oil, the upside leader there kind of helping and bring along commodities. Crude oil up over $3 a barrel thanks to optimism over better economic activity in China as well as a rash of global supply concerns and those factors bleeding over into the grain complex, particularly soybean oil and soybeans. Short and long-term concerns abound uh, there regarding exports. It eased at least somewhat to, thanks to that weaker greenback and potential Chinese demand, but prices for U.S. exports remain quite elevated in comparison to cheaper global supplies. So that's something to watch. We're going to be keeping our eyes on um, whether or not we can secure some more soybean sales to China before the Brazilian crop hits the ports. And that's something that uh, that South America crop looking rather large. We're going to have to keep our eyes on that. Also watching whether or not the Ukraine grain export deal gets renewed. Negotiations ongoing for that here today. You're listening to AOA. That's the check of the market trade. I'm Jesse Allen reporting for the American Ag Network. You're going to need me. You're going to need us. All of us. You're going to need our technical skills. Our math, our engineering skills. You're going to need our help with your water, your air, your food. You're going to need our organizational skills, our problem-solving skills. You're going to need our determination, our honesty, our compassion. You're going to need the next generation of leaders to face the challenges the future will bring. And we promise we'll be there when you need us. Today, 4-H is growing the next generation of leaders. Support us at 4-H.org. Agriculture of America is brought to you by Cenex Premium Diesel. Diesel that doesn't mess around. Information farmers and ranchers need to know. AOA. Now back to Mike Pearson. Welcome back to AOA, ladies and gentlemen. This next segment, we're going to kind of wrap up a lot of the issues we've been discussing here on the program in recent days. We've got an international trade discussion coming next. We've got a U.S. ag safety and security discuss discussion coming next. And we've got all of this as it relates to to the potato industry. Joining me now is Cam Quarles, the CEO of the National Potato Council. Cam, before we get into the geopolitical issues in the potato industry, give us a harvest update first. How were potato growers, how'd they fare this year across the country? Yeah, I think, Mike, you know, across the country, obviously, you've got a lot of different growing growing regions. We're the most widely produced vegetable in the U.S., but overall, I think we had a, a, a high-quality crop, might have been a little bit smaller than, than we've seen in previous years. Uh, so, uh, some re regions were smaller. Some uh, had a little bit, bit bigger crop. Overall, on average, I think it's going to be a little bit smaller, but uh, the the um, the quality of the crop is outstanding. So I, I think generally folks are feeling pretty positive about this year's harvest. Well, that's certainly good to hear. And Cam, quality of the U.S. potato crop is the reason we're having this conversation. North of the United States border in Canada on Prince Edward Island, they've been grappling with potato wart. And for our audience who's outside the potato industry, Cam, could you give us the rundown, the short version of the past year grappling with potato wart to the north? Yeah, Mike, and you know, it's an unfortunate issue that the Canadians are dealing with, the folks on Prince Edward Island. Uh, potato wart is one of the most destructive diseases that you can get in, uh, in, in potato production. It's uh, our industry's version of uh, uh, hoof and mouth disease, th those type of um, th those type of kind of cataclysmic uh, issues if you actually get it in your production areas. Uh, last year, 
Uh, some additional finds of the disease were found on Prince, Ed <clears throat> Prince Edward Island. It resulted in the Canadians voluntarily suspending all exports to the United States. The U.S. had urged them to do that. This caused a lot of diplomatic pressure. Uh, Prime Minister Trudeau sat down with President Biden in the Oval Office, and I'm sure President Biden was probably shocked to be talking potatoes in the Oval Office, but he was. Um, and effectively, the White House told USDA to reopen the market uh, due to the, they, they wanted to satisfy diplomatic concerns with Canada. And Cam, that and happened that. back in they, April, they, wasn't it? Exactly. That happened in springtime, happened in, in April. Since that time, Mike, uh, so the exports of what we call table stock potatoes, fresh potatoes, started to move again. They are now allowed into the United States. Really no additional safety measures were instituted by USDA um, when that market was reopened. However, APHIS has done a risk assessment and looked at all of the data that they have available to them since that time frame. And they released a report last month, mid-October, and it was really striking what they found in terms of the immediate the clear and present threat to the U.S. industry if more is not done to deal with this disease. Absolutely, Cam. And it's that APHIS risk assessment. I'm hoping you could dig into a little more details. They, As you mentioned, they outlined a lot of risks that are prevalent with these PEI potatoes coming into the U.S. What were some of their chief concerns? Yeah, it was a pretty sobering report, Mike. I, basically, that you know, they they said uh, um, very clearly. They said it's not a question of if potato wart will come into the United States; it's when. If if additional mitigation measures are not established, uh, it also said uh, that their assessment is that the disease outbreak on Prince Edward Island is larger than has been publicly reported. And certainly the testing that the Canadians are doing on the island to figure out just how big that, that outbreak is, uh, is not anywhere near complete. So it, it was just kind of a cascading series of risks to the U.S. industry. So with this report out from APHIS and with Secretary Vilsack coming out and saying it's critical that we base our ag trade decisions on sound science, Cam, what's the path forward for USDA to negotiate both the diplomatic issues and the security of the U.S. potato crop? Yeah, I, I think optimistically, Mike, they're doing this in a in a methodical way. They want to have the facts on their side. This report was, is the first step in justifying, which is what is going to become either unilateral action by USDA to deal with the, this threat or hopefully collaborative action with the Canadians. Um, you know, you've had some advocates on the Canadian side of the border, obviously with their economic interests threatened, who have made this a purely political issue and said that this is just effectively not a problem, everything's fine. But I think the Canadian authorities, the federal authorities there have, um, uh, ha have taken a more serious look at it. Um, and I, I think uh, CFIA as well as USDA are gonna be able to get together, come up with a series of steps that makes sense, that deal with the risk, uh, and hopefully we don't get to this uh, place where we've got to institute an, another export ban, which is, you know, it, it's economically, it's destructive on both sides of the border. But what would be vastly worse, Mike, if we got this disease here, it would shut down opportunities for U.S. for the U.S. industry. Uh, it, it would just change our our economic world overnight. Cam, let's talk a little bit about how it would change the economic world overnight. If we got PEI, if we got potato wart rather in this country, what's the impact on the potato crop? Does it rob yield and would it impact our exports? Uh, yeah, I, I think immediately all of our key exporting uh, partners around the world would uh, e either put sanctions on our exports, put limitations on them, or outright block us from being able to ship. Uh, certainly you would have, depending on if the doomsday scenario is it gets into a production area in the U.S. Um, if it did in a particular state, other states would likely refuse to accept products. So we would have both domestic and international limitations. And then over a period of time, this, this disease is so difficult to eradicate um, that I, I, you know, I, I think that it, it would 
just it, it would vastly impact uh, planting decisions, the supply chain, everything that uh, makes this industry what it is, a four and a half billion dollar a year industry, uh, it, it, it would all be turned on its head if we got something like this in a production area. Oof, boy, that is a sobering thought, Cam. I'm wondering, as USDA and CFIA work to come up with an agreement, are there preventative steps we can take on potatoes from Canada to uh, mitigate the risk of wort traveling with them? Can we wash them or brush them or something? Or is it just uh, it catches catch can? Yeah, we've we've raised another a number of issues, Mike. Uh, w- one of them has been implemented. Uh, uh, Seed potatoes from Prince Edward Island uh, used to be fundamental to uh, a lot of the U.S. production, particularly on the East Coast. Those seed potatoes have been suspended, and they remain suspended. You can't bring them into the U.S. Um, we're also looking at uh, equipment crossing the border. That that uh, equipment that may be in a disease-infested field can certainly bring soil that would uh, that w- that would spread disease. You've also got to look at e- even even um, uh, bulk potatoes where uh, you bring them in in large loads. They're re- they're broken down, repacked, sent to retail. There's waste that that happens there. Um, those those bulk potato loads they they've got to be addressed by APHIS and CFIA, uh, possibly limited to much smaller sizes in order to minimize the possibility of disease introduction. And then the big thing is. The Canadians just have to demand that testing occurs on Prince Edward Island in a very robust way. They they had reduced their testing over the years, and it allowed the disease to get out of control. They've got to institute it and make it even bigger so they have the intelligence to know how to knock this disease down, where it is, uh, and, and how to, how to safeguard uh, production, both in Canada and in the U.S. Absolutely. Hopefully they can get that cracked down, get some more testing in place, and we can track this disease and hopefully keep it out of the United States. Cam, before we let you go, I did want to talk about a success that we've seen in the potato industry. Sale of fresh potatoes deep into Mexico has started this year. How's it going so far? Uh, we're we're very pleased with how things are are beginning there, Mike. Um, it, the 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 door was cracked open back uh, back in May of the, of this year. Um, we're slowly sending uh, some. We've sent some test loads down there. Slowly, methodically building the market. Now that the harvest is complete, I think our our volumes can start to grow there. We've got a long way to go. Um, we uh, this has been a huge political battle with uh, with Mexico, but we think that over time, over the next couple of years, as we've got high quality U.S. potatoes in the market, increasing consumer demand for potatoes generally, both the Mexican industry, the U.S. industry is going to is going to benefit from this, and of course, consumers in Mexico. What's exciting to us is if you fully build this market out, Mike. You're talking about a 10 to 15 percent increase in global potato U.S. potato exports just just from the 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 durable reopening uh, durable opening of Mexico. Wow! Literally, just bringing fresh potatoes all the way into Mexico is going to add 10 to 15 percent, Cam. Huge, huge opportunity. That is phenomenal. Glad to see we've got some opportunities for American potato growers out there south of the border. And Cam, we wish you the best of luck in fighting that scourge of potato wart to the north. Thanks for jumping on the show today and talking with us. Mike, glad to be here. Happy Veterans Day. Absolutely, folks. We've been speaking here with Cam Quarles, the CEO of the National Potato Council, as they work to keep potato wart out of the United States and keep that U.S. potato industry vital. Stick around. We'll have more AOA when we return. We're going to talk with Western Iowa farmer Kelly Garrett of Extreme Ag. He's wrapped up harvest. We're going to hear how things went over there in his part of the world. Stick around for more AOA. Agriculture of America is brought to you by Cenex Premium Diesel. Diesel that doesn't mess around. What do Mick Jagger, Barbara Walters, and Star Jones all have in common? They've all suffered from something called heart valve disease. Heart valve disease affects 11 million Americans and if left untreated can lead to death. 
Unfortunately, less than one in four Americans have much knowledge of this disease that kills more than 25,000 people every year. The good news is that if heart valve disease is treated, patients can recover and live long, happy, and productive lives. But in order to treat heart valve disease, you need to know if you have it. If you or your loved ones are over the age of 65, have been treated with radiation to the chest, have been diagnosed with a heart murmur, or have a history of heart disease, it's time to listen to your heart. Ask your doctor today about screening for heart valve disease. A message brought to you by Heart Valve Voice US. For more information about the symptoms and treatment for valve disease, go to heartvalvevoice-us.org. 54. So, basically, it's too late to start saving for retirement, right? Not right. Starting to save, even in your 50s, can really make a difference. Well, right now, saving seems hard to wrap my head around. Plus, with the way this year's been going... <laughs> hey, listen. It's okay. You still got this. Just go to aceyourretirement.org. It's an online tool from AARP that can help you get your retirement savings on track no matter your age. It's free and only takes about three minutes. I like three minutes. Yeah. At aceyourretirement.org, you'll chat with Avo, the friendly digital retirement coach. Just answer a few questions and you'll get a personalized plan and tips to help boost your retirement savings. Tips that are easy to understand and tailored to your lifestyle. I like that too. Plus, it's sponsored by AARP, so you know they got your back. Just head to aceyourretirement.org and make your plan to start saving for retirement. Thanks. That's aceyourretirement.org. A message from AARP and the Ad Council. These acres you've put your life into, your view each harvest morning. While the ag industry changes, this land is meant to be here for your grandkids and then theirs. That's why ADS and drainage contractors across the nation are doing our part to protect America's farm families. We're proud to provide water management solutions that make family farms like yours more profitable, now and for generations to come. Learn more about how we keep families farming at ADSPipe.com. On the first Wednesday of every month, our friends from the National Corn Growers Association join us on AOA for a segment we call The Monthly Grind. This month's edition focused on poultry. Shelby Watson of the USA Poultry and Egg Export Council joined the show with Mike Beard, Indiana farmer. We talked about how much corn exported poultry uses in this country. In 2021, the U.S. poultry industry exported about 303 million corn bushel equivalents worth of poultry. So we're expecting to... Um, fly by that this year. Um, we know the numbers are already kind of bypassing that. So we're excited to see the full 2022 picture. Um, but the poultry industry consumes about 1.2 billion bushels of corn, which makes them the largest consumer um, of corn grain in the livestock sector. Mike Beard, corn grower from Indiana, he had this to say. One bird doesn't eat a lot of feed, but a lot of birds will, will eat a lot. That's the monthly grind from NCGA and AOA. Tune in December 7th for the next installment. This is the place most people think of when they hear that a seed has been engineered for superior performance and designed with proven genetic traits. Because something like that could only come from a lab, right? But this is where Allegiant Seed by CHS comes from. It's made by farmers for farmers. Its advanced genetics and unbeatable value are proven here in their fields to make sure they do the job in yours. Talk to your CHS retailer about Allegiant Seed today or learn more at AllegiantSeed.com. At Bravant, our corn and soybean varieties are vetted nearly three million times against the competition. How many? Three million frickin' times. Hey man, I'm standing right next to you. Ah, sorry, got a little excited. Don't take us at our word, take us at our proof. Visit Bravant.com to see for yourself. Bravant Seeds, it's about time. Bravant multi-year on-farm pre-commercial head-to-head -head comparisons, third-party and research trials, based on more than 2.8 million comparisons. This is Ernie Johnson Jr. Sports is about overcoming obstacles, and college coaches work hard to help young men overcome Duchenne muscular dystrophy. It's called Coach to Cure MD, and you can help. Text the word CURE to 501-501 to donate $25 on your next mobile phone bill, or go online to coachtocuremd.org. Text the word CURE to 501-501. Help coaches cure MD. Brought to you by the American Football Coaches Association. Agriculture of America is brought to you by Senex Maxtron Synthetic Diesel Engine Oils. Oils that run smart.
Information farmers and ranchers need to know. AOA. Now back to Mike Pearson. Thanks for tuning in to AOA here on this Veterans Day. If you're just joining us, we started the show with a salute to all the veterans who have served, put their lives on hold, and dedicate themselves to keeping America free. And folks, we just want to thank you one more time for the service you've put in for this country. Next up to round out the show for this week, we're going to talk harvest. We're going to talk Iowa harvest, and we're talking not just with any farmer. We are talking with a farmer who has repeatedly been a top placer when it comes to yield challenges. Kelly Garrett, Aryan Iowa agriculturalist and partner in ExtremeAg.Farm. Kelly, thanks for joining us today. How are you, Mike? Thanks for having me. Well, I am fantastic. Last time we had the chance to speak, it was Farm Progress Show. Kelly, of course, you've wrapped up harvest now. How are yields looking there around Arian? They were down a little from the last couple years, which is to be expected with the uh, dry weather. Our corn overall is going to be right about 200 bushel per acre over 4,000 acres. All right. Well, that's not too terrible. Kelly, are you growing beans on that farm as well? Yes, we uh, we have a, a couple thousand acres of beans, and uh, the early beans were only 55. You know, the, the first third of the acres would be what I would consider early beans. They were planted earlier in April. Uh, there was the wind blew in the spring, uh, covered up some of the rows with residue. You know, there's a lot of residue left with the dry winter. It didn't break down. Uh, and then the August rains that we received, those beans were probably finished by then, again, because of the dry weather. So the early third of the beans only made 55 for us. The second two-thirds made about 73. So I, I kind of consider it two different crops, Mike, and because of the big difference there. Overall, it's 64, 65, which is a profitable year. Uh, I guess, you know, I'm, I'm never satisfied, but uh, in a they have 64, 65 bushel beans, uh, and with the prices we have, that's profitable. So I'm happy. I'm happy for the year that we had. Well, that's good to hear, Kelly. I, I'm wondering what was the time difference between planting those early beans and the the second bean crop there at the uh, the Garrett farm. There was a week or ten day gap there. Uh, you know, so we planted that. You know, we planted some corn, and we had a little residue struggles with some of that early corn too. You know, the wind blew. For a week or 10 days, there was some weather, some moisture came in, and the wind blew 40, 50 miles an hour, and it blew the corn stalk residue all over, and it, it hurt germination on the corn and the beans. Uh, many of our neighbors battled the same problem, and you could see the crops, the fields that were planted that first week, there was a marked difference between them and then what was planted a week, 10 days later when that weather passed. Gotcha. Now, Kelly, with ExtremeAg.Farm, you're working with growers across the country. How were yields for the other folks there in the uh, in the company? You know, Lee is in uh, Gregory, South Dakota, and very dry for him. He said it's as dry for him as it has been since 2012, and and I would agree. Uh, they uh, their their crop yields up there are are down a bit, uh, but uh, Kevin Matthews in North Carolina, uh, his yields were very nice. You know, the other two partners would be uh, Matt Miles in McGee, Arkansas, in the Delta. And he had some decent yields, but, uh, but it was so hot that uh, there was a little bit of a yield penalty because of that. And then Chad Henderson by Huntsville, Alabama, had some nice irrigated yields. But again, his dry land wasn't very good for what he's used to the last couple of years because of the hot, dry weather. It just it really persisted throughout the country for us. Yeah, no, that, that heat and dryness, I'm hearing that from growers everywhere this past year. Kelly, and I'm wondering, I know the folks at Extreme like trying new things, putting some new trials out there on the ground. Was there anything this year on your operation that, that really kind of took your breath away with how it performed? One of the new products that we tried, and I was kind of skeptical of it, uh, but it is a, uh, it's a synthetic molecule. The name of the product is Source. It's from Sound Agriculture. And we spray source on at a rate of seven-tenths of an ounce per acre. We applied it in our fungicide pass, so right at tassel. And it's supposed to help stimulate the ground to release elemental nitrogen and elemental phosphorus. And on a 300-acre trial, I had a 24-bushel yield gain. I'm really excited about that. I'm working to reduce my nitrogen, my synthetic nitrogen, trying to bring my ground into balance. It's, it's, to me, it's the most exciting research that I've got going on. And when you have a product like Source that, that provides this to the ground or provides this to the yield benefit, and it's, it's working in the direction that I think the science is going to go, it's really exciting for me. 
It really is. And Kelly, if we've got listeners who are curious about sort of the work that you or the other Extreme Ag partners are doing on their operations, how does Extreme Ag work? How can we keep up to date and learn about what uh, what you folks are up to? Uh, we have our own website. It's extremeag.farm, and, and Extreme starts with an X. Uh, we're on Facebook and Twitter and Instagram. You know, the, uh, the yearly membership is $750 uh, to subscribe. Uh, we feel like if we answer one question or help you with one trial or one product, you know, we, we talk about cutting your learning curve. We think $750 is a tremendous value uh, for what farming costs today. Uh, if we can if we can save you one step, it, it's not hard to have a payback on that seven hundred and fifty dollars. Yeah, that's true. Life lessons cost tuition as well, and they can be pretty expensive. Kelly, you mentioned you're trying to get your nitrogen figured out, dialed in on your operation. Looking ahead to next year, are you pre-bought with all your fertilizer? How's that situation look in Western Iowa? Yes, we are. Uh, we purchased our anhydrous ahead of time. It's gone up about five hundred dollars a ton since then. And uh, I'm about 75% done, Mike. We're not quite done applying that fall anhydrous. I, it's, you know, this morning when we got up, it was about 18 degrees, and the wind chill made it feel like two. So we're not trying to apply right now. It's too cold. Hopefully we'll get some warmer weather coming, and we can get back out there for a couple days or a few days and, and get it done. Uh, my other fertility, uh, you know, we're, we're a little bit unique. We take the byproduct out of a liquid feed plant in Des Moines and Sioux City, and that provides us with phosphorus and sulfur and part of our potassium. And we're in the middle of applying those products right now, that, that byproduct right now, and that's the extent of our fertility other than what is planted or applied in the spring. So everything's coming along nicely. I, I just need a few more warmer days for Mother Nature to finish that anhydrous. Absolutely. Hopefully those warmer days are coming and this cold front will blow over our heads. Folks, we've been speaking with Kelly Garrett, area and Iowa farmer and partner in ExtremeAg.Farm. Kelly, thanks for joining us today. Thank you, Mike. Have a great day. Happy Thanksgiving. And folks, as well, tune in next time. We're going to be talking markets with Chris Robinson when AOA comes back next episode. Thanks for listening. Hope you have a great weekend. Agriculture of America is brought to you by Cenex Premium Diesel. Diesel that doesn't mess around. With harvest wrapping up, channel technical agronomist Don Gustafson joins me to provide an outlook on harvest and an analysis of channel's product performance this year. Don, thinking back to the weather this past year, did it set up any pest concerns? Absolutely. We had northern corn rootworm pressure, which was fairly high this season. Uh, beetles were present in cornfields and bean fields throughout South Dakota, even farther west than what we've seen in the previous years. And we saw a clipping of silks, which led to susceptibility of diseases entering the ears, such as corn smut. And when performing root digs, it showed larva feeding. So overall, this pest is robbing yields. So I recommend that for 2023, you protect your yields with Smart Stacks or Smart Stacks Pro Hybrids and consider an insecticide at planting. That's Don Gustafson with an update on channel products this year. To see how channel products are performing in your area and sign up to receive local harvest results via text or email, visit channel.com yield.